storytelling is such a sort of a, a potent way of becoming more than you are. It's, it's, it's be able to somehow reach back into the things that you were, the places that you came from, the people you've, you've, you've known, and mould those together into something that means something to somebody else. Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open, a literary podcast that is a project of The Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop. Today we are very lucky to have author and local man about town, Ted Dore, with us. Hello, Ted. Hi there. Nice to be here. Are you a man about town? Yeah, I work in town and I spend very little time outside town. Right. So if you're a man anywhere, this is where you this are. Is, this is my location. Fabulous. So Ted is going to be the star of, of book night that we're having in a couple of weeks where we're talking about banned books. And one of his books has in fact been banned, which was an exciting experience we will traverse. But before that happened to him, and, and in other parts of his life, Ted is a teacher and a teacher of writing and someone who interacts with young people a lot. And you write for young people. And so I was interested in the story you told me a while ago about teaching or helping people from difficult backgrounds learn to write and I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah sure. I've been an English teacher most of my working life and um, in most of that time it's been teaching in secondary schools. A big chunk of that's been teaching boys but I've taught in co-ed schools too. I taught for a number of years in South Auckland and one of the challenges I soon discovered was the students who were quite good orally, but as soon as you had you tried to get them to write things down, they get very intimidated and they froze up and they couldn't express themselves. Often these are the ones who end up being expelled and fighting and swearing and, and just generally not succeeding in the school system. So I thought as an English teacher with a very limited ability to interact with kids, I would try to get them to be able to express themselves in a way that was meaningful. And so... I began a course with us teaching them oral storytelling. So not writing so much as just sitting in circles, talking about incidents that happened to them. And that takes a lot of trust, especially when the kids are 13 and 14, because you have a certain amount of self-exposure involved there. But the stories that came out were sort of fascinating. And I listened to the stories, and all anyone could say was, thank you. They, They couldn't ask questions about them, and they were just... The only person who, the only other thing you could say was you could say, I don't have a story at this moment. And the, circuit, and the, the chain would carry on till it came round again. And the pressure built on them to have a story. Now, when these stories were all told, then I got the kids, then I went around, now you're going to write them. And I want them to be as true and as real as they were when you spoke them. And that took weeks. But when they were finally done, I, I was so proud of those stories that I thought, I must publish these. And so I got them typed up. By the um, in those days, there were typing classes. I got the kids in the typing class to type them up, and then I had them published in a collection called "Telling It True," which was published by the Cohere Teachers Centre. They were tough stories, but they were really good for starters for other kids in, in other schools. And they read these stories about you know their mother dying or their father going to jail or whatever, and they said, "Yeah, I've got a story like this." And that's sort of it was a very successful initiative, and that was my. I started thinking about writing and, and, and stories and, and the liberating effects of literature. And 
what is that liberating effect, do you think? What is the magic of telling or sharing a story? Why does that affect us? Well, storytelling is such a sort of a, a potent way of becoming more than you are. It's, it's, it's be able to somehow reach back into the things that you were, the places that you came from, the people you've, you've, you've known, and mould those together into something that means something to somebody else. That already means a lot to you. You're carrying it around your head. Everyone's, everyone's head's full of these things. But the challenge of making it into a form where it can be meaningful and enjoyable and exciting and sun, fun and funny to someone else that's a, a difficult thing to do. And if you, if you can pull it off, you get an immense feeling of satisfaction. And is it particularly valuable for people who are carrying around difficult things, you think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. The stories which these kids told me about, they, they seemed mundane. You know, like, for instance, this, um, this story started off, I'll just briefly outline, started off with this woman coming over and asking this girl's mother if she could get her father... In the girl's father to take their name off the letterbox next door, and all this led back to the fact that the man next door had hung himself in the letterbox, and the family had disappeared. And now they'd closed down, and they'd sold up, and they're moving out. And there's no one, to take, no screwdriver in the house. There's no man to take the name off the letterbox. And it's those little significant, powerful, unique details that a whole story hangs on. You know. Wow. And did you feel? overwhelmed by this yeah, experience? Yeah, no, I did, I did. I felt privileged and overwhelmed. I thought there was real gold here. That's why I, I felt I had a duty to take it to a wider audience. I, I made sure that the kids were okay with it because lots of them are very personal. The stories about being sexually assaulted, stories about humiliating experiences, stories about unbearable loss. Um, but in the end, every single kid consented to this and um, I think they felt some sense of... I hate the word closure, but some sense of completion by, by the fact that the story was going, was floating out. It had been race, racing around in their head like a wild dog for many years, doing all sorts of damage, and now it was liberated. And there's actually research to say that, you know, talking about things helps, but actually just writing them down helps as well. You know, I'm you sure. don't need to be speaking to someone else. It's the act of externalising it and shaping it, as you say, in some way through narrative that helps you process it and free yourself in some way. Well, I think I think thoughts damage us often, unless we can, can get, get them into some sort of an order, regiment them into a story, make them, get, get an idea of scale from them. Otherwise, all they are is powerful emotions that come back at you again and again and again. And if you can somehow transmute those into a narrative I think it's a healing thing to do and did you repeat this process or was this something you only did once I only did it once I mean I left that school I went to another school and the story it was a much more prosperous school and the kids were far more middle class and they were more eurocentric and the stories they produced were nowhere near as interesting without putting too fine a point on it yeah they're okay but they didn't have that raw quality that these first ones had. I thought I had a sense at the time that they were beginning else like this, and it turned out to be true. I get occasional ones, but not in the number. Not seventy or eighty percent of the group coming forth a really powerful, interesting story. You know, someone said, someone I can't remember who it was, and I apologise to that person. Said the, the, you know, the writer writes to try and deal with the wound. Yeah. No. That's. 
it's actually one of my articles of faith. Oh, did you say that? You said that yourself sitting here. Yeah. I apologise to yeah. you. It was no, you who it, said that. It, it, it's sort of, um, it's how you sort of bring some sort of healing thing to a, to a raw wound that won't go away. Um, you give it the attention it requires and you have a hard look at it and you learn to understand it and to accept it. And that seems the perfect segue into asking you how you became a writer. Well, I became a writer by, by teaching kids how to write. I never wrote before that. But after a while, I'd, I'd look at their stories and I'd say, you know, you can make this, more, give it more impact by doing this. There's no swearing here. Where's the swearing? Where is the swearing, he yeah. cried. Yeah, you know, you've, you've left That's it That's where the trouble started. You're censoring in your head, aren't you? You know, and so those sorts of things. You must make this as rough and ugly and painful as it was at the time. Otherwise, you're not doing justice to the, to the events that happened. Yeah, and so spouting all these sorts of things to kids, then I sort of thought, well, I'd like to crack at this myself. I'd already helped kids writing plays and putting on, helping with their speeches and writing debate rebuttals and stuff like this. What you do as a secondary school teacher. But then one day, I thought I'd sit down and I'd write me a novel. Mm. Eat your own dog food. And how did that go? Like, How was that first adventure into writing a novel? Well, the first one wasn't so hot. It, it, didn't, it didn't quite come off. It, it's, but, you know, nothing's wasted in writing. I've been picking away at the records ever since. You know, basically repurposed bits of that story are still popping up every now and then. But, uh, and um, I tried really hard to get it published. Everyone who's had work published knows how difficult it is to get published. And um, I tried really hard. And in the end, I got so desperate, I, um, I sent it off to um, the South African writer, J.M. Kurtzier. Which is a wonderfully audacious thing to do. Yeah, it's a crazy thing to do, really. Um, I just read Disgrace, you see, and I thought that was a terrific book. And I thought, in lots of ways, my book was a bit like that. You know, and I, that's, that's giving it far more credit than it deserves. And so I sent it off to him because I thought, if nothing else, he'll understand my book. And it went away for, oh... Eight months, the book does it went So, did you send him a hard copy, of like course, a manuscript? All, all the pages, you right? Know. So you post- printed them all off and you posted yeah, it off po- to, to him. Stellenbosch University, where he was based at that time, and then I got a really courteous letter about eight months later, saying apologising for the fact that he'd been all around the world, sort of winning Booker prizes and getting plots, and came back to my book and said, "Yes, no, oh, it's a good book, but it's got these sort of fa- ba- fatal flaws in it." And I thought, really, that's great. All I read was that was a good book. I didn't care about the fatal flaws because already I had another idea for a new book. And that was Thunder Road. And it was well underway. But I just felt this gave me a giant push. And I went lunging on into Thunder Road and never never looked back. Mm. Mm, so thanks, JM. Yeah, that's mm. a great story. Mm. That's a really great story. So I've only read one of your books. Um, I don't think I'm quite your key target audience, which is really young men, I think. Young men and women of all ages. Yes, fair right. enough, fair mm. enough. And I'm, you know, middle class and middle aged and work in insurance, so very staid. But I really enjoyed reading Into the Into the River. And as I just said to you before we started, it's set in the part of Auckland that I happen to live in at the moment around Newmarket. And so I enjoyed, you know, you do get that little pleasurable shock of recognition when you say, oh, yes, I know, you know, where that is and what's going on there. 
Um, but it is obviously, you know, a very boy-centred book. And you've said, I think, about Thunder Road that you were thinking about the things that the boys that you had taught were concerned about and interested in, and you wanted to write a book that reflected those concerns. And as you say, that had plenty of swearing in it to reflect how they really talk, you know, and the word cunt comes up a lot. Although I have to say I was disappointed because I was hoping it was going to come up in some spicier context than it did, but it was just, you know, sort of standard swear word. So what is the urge to write the boy-focused fiction that well, the you first, do? Well, the Thunder Road I wrote purely and simply because I couldn't get boys to read novels. When I put novels in their hands, famous famous novels that were... Here you said, Jane Eyre, you'll love it. <laughs> no, no I, I put things like Morris G in their hands and they said it was boring. And I said, why? He's one of the best writers we've got. And he said, oh, he goes, oh, no, no, he's describing something. Show me. I said, it's only half a page. Said, yeah, it's boring. Half a page, one sentence would be enough, and I got the point. And so I made a thing, made it, made a story that was very much action-driven, where nothing stood still, and where once it started, it rolled relentlessly onto it to the final page. And I made it very much to do with what with the boys I, I was I was thinking about when I wrote it. And I thought if I can write a book that works for them, it'll work for other people as well. It'll work for girls as well, because girls want to know what's going on inside boys' heads. And, and it did, as it, as it turned out. You don't have to write bearing the whole of humanity in mind. You have to write really well for a particular group of people, and then everyone else will probably like it too or get something out of it. And I think that's a really great truth, and it's to have a reader or a specific group in mind as a reader and to say, well, I will make this for them. Mm. Is, it gives a sort of honesty and focus to the work as well, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Don't try, don't try to please everybody, you know, because you'll end up pleasing nobody and pleasing yourself. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's a scene in Into the River where Te Arapa has sex with a girl who's sort of actively resisting at the right. moment and she's yep. saying, no, you know, stop. And he doesn't stop. He mm. carries on. And I was interested in the fact as I was reading this book and as the mother of, a, they're very small at the moment, but a boy and a girl and thinking, oh gosh, you know, both of the roles in this are, are uncomfortable and kind of awful for the young people involved. But there were really no consequences from this rape scene in the book, I felt. And I wondered what you had to say about that. No, there, there was no consequences other than the fact that it was sort of a, um, a failed attempt at connection. Uh, there may have been physical connection, but there was no emotional connection achieved, and it's ultimately meaningless for both parties. And it, and the girl, you say it was a rape scene, it, it, in the sense that it was non-consensual, but it was, it was that sort of blurry line of non-consensuality that I think that 13 and 14 year old kids don't really understand very well. And the whole point about putting a scene like that in there, first of all, you've got to make it reasonably vivid, otherwise you're glossing over it. You're glossing over it. And the other thing is it should be in there because girls and boys find themselves in those situations all the time. In fact, grown adults find themselves in those situations too. And they don't handle them any better when they're 29 or 40 than they do when they're 14 in many cases. You know, no means yes sort of thing. Maybe there were no consequences for him, I don't know. It wasn't that important to the story. The story is all centred around his emotional development, really, and that's that's a little milestone on the way, along with the earlier sexual encounter he had when he was back visiting home, which in a sense was almost role reversal. Those sorts of those sorts of incidents, early sexual experimentation, aren't really dealt with by a lot of teenage writers in New Zealand anyway. Though they weren't when I was when I was looking around, they probably are now. Um, so I felt that yeah. I wanted something in there that that would be relevant. 
And what's the responsibility, do you think, or is there any responsibility, because not everyone feels that there is, you know, art and responsibility go together, but of a writer of young adult fiction to address these issues and to sort of raise awareness, I guess to participate in the kind of raising of their readers, is that... Is no, that a responsibility I don't, no, I don't, I don't or really not? That is my responsibility at all. That's that's the responsibility of um, the parents and the teachers and those sorts of things. I'm writing a novel, and people can take what that like, what they like from that novel. You know, a lot of things saying, "Oh, he gets through a lot of drugs, this guy." And you know, I'm not going to put in there, "Hey, kids, by the way, don't take drugs; they're really bad for you, and you'll end up being a heroin junkie at the bottom of Queen Street." And that's not my role, okay? And also, that's so patronising. You know, if, if kids see, find something distasteful or dishonest or whatever, they'll make their own judgments about it. They don't need me, this fogey, telling them that they should or shouldn't be doing it. And by the way, here's a good character. Here's how he does it. You know, that's really that's really the, the, the provenance of, of a, another generation of... of You're um, not writing writer. Pilgrim's po- Progress. No, I'm not writing Eden Blightened either. You know, <laughs> I'm not a moraliser. I don't like being moralised too, and I don't, I don't, I don't and I avoid moralising to other people. People make them, you know, they form their own moral values based on who they are, their religion, their background, all those sorts of things, and they make choices in relation to those. And yet, we have in this country and in most, you know, uh, first world countries, a special entity set up to safeguard our moral values as it pertains to books. Hmm. And your book fell a cropper of these people and was, in fact, censored. Yeah, no, that was a terrible experience because the book had been so successful. And, you know, I had won the top book for its year. It had won the inaugural um, Margaret Mahi Award, best kid or teenage novel in, in the country for the year. And so yeah, I would think this time was a great time for celebration. Well, within weeks, I'm going to be identified by a group called Family First. Bless who, them. Mm. Bless them. What would we do without them? Well, of course, they, were, they, were, um, they didn't read the book themselves. Of course, they were, they were snitched on by some well-meaning um, book owners from the, from the central Waikato who wrote to Family First saying, look what I've been horrified by. And, of course, then they read it and counted the cunts, as you'd say. Yes. Um, and, and how many were there? Well, there's a lot of, lot of arguments. I, was, I never counted them. Um, but well, I know, tried to count them, but I think I got wrapped up in the story yeah, and yeah. missed a few as I went no, along, yeah. you know. Um, and, you know, and so eventually what happened was it, it went down to this august body or this august person called the censor, and that time it's called Nick McCulley. And Nick read this book and um, wrote a very scholarly um, 14 page response to it, saying that it was fine and possibly I could have written 14 pages is a long time to say it's fine. Well, she, she analyzed <laughs> everything, including this, you know, the, the shade of the color of the cover, and um, all you know, is the most thorough analysis that book's ever been given. It was a very a very erudite literary one as well, and she gave it a, a clean bill of health with a single proviso that possibly should be a little warning on the outside saying, suitable for older readers. Bit, would bit, I be, bit rough inside in parts. Yeah, so would I be yeah. willing to have that? And I said, of course I would. And well, of course, that, that was challenged by Family First, and this, but when, when it was um, reviewed, because it wasn't reviewed by the sense, it was reviewed by a thing called the, the Review Board. And this is a bunch of people chosen from various walks of life. They were chosen, for instance, um, lay preachers who don't read a lot of young teenage fiction, lawyers, 
people, the four, four or five people assembled from different parts of the country were given the book, flown into Wellington, and then having to deliberate on it. How incredible. Mm. I mean, let's just step back from the Very madness here and say, mm. that's amazing that people were flown into Wellington to sit around and read your book and consider whether it would sort of corrupt the morals of the young. Well, uh, they, they were given the book weeks earlier, and then they were flown to Wellington to hash it out. And um, in the end, they couldn't reach an agreement. But the control of the panel, a guy called Professor Don Matheson, who was the, um, the Dean of Law at Victoria University, thought that censoring was too good for it. It should be sealed in plastic and put on a shelf at least nine feet from the floor. Did he say no, nine no, feet no, from no, the floor? No, no, he didn't say that. Because we're in metric now. No, yeah. Nine metres, much taller. It's very <laughs> but, hard but to But anyway, so that, that from that to people that was in the panel who thought it was okay, to the middle ground said, hey, let's just make it R14. And that seemed like a happy median. And, you know, everyone said to me, oh, Ted, you should be okay with that. I mean, do you really want 13-year-olds to read it? I said, yeah, I do, actually, and 12s and 11s. Because it's about a 13-year-old, isn't it? It's also kids read ahead of, the, ahead of oh. their chronological age. They're not interested in kids their own age. They're interested in kids two years older because that's, that's what's around the next corner. Because teenagers read to get sort of um, to get a, a, look, a, a heads up on what's coming. And situations like the one you described where some boy's all over them and they can't stop them. You know, and it's far safer to read about in a book than um, to have it have it in real life. So anyway, the long and the short of it was it got this R fourteen label, which which seemed like it was sort of um, okay, but of course it wasn't. That's why I raised a thing before. It was a librarian discussion about keeping books in stacks under the library and requesting them. All my books came off the shelves because they couldn't sit on the shelf in case a thirteen year old strayed and grabbed. Or oh, heaven help us, a twelve year old. Yeah. And so they all went down down to the basement. And up to that point, it was the most borrowed young adult title in New Zealand. And then within days, no one borrowed it ever again, basically. So it went from, from ha- having waiting lists of 30 and 40 people to no one borrowing it from one week to the next, while th- 32 copies sat in the basement of the Auckland Library. And they stayed there for two years. Until I went in one day and I met the librarian Louise Lahat, and she said... I, she that is a great name. Can I just stop you and say, what a name. She's a great woman. Yeah. And they were celebrating banned books like you're about to do. And they had a little faux bonfire there with, you know, Dr. Seuss and um, To Kill a Mockingbird and other famous banned filth. And I said, why isn't my book on there, Louise? I mean, she said, your book's not banned. And I said, it might as well be banned because no one even knows it exists anymore, even though it was really popular only two years ago. It's been sent to the gulag and will never be seen again. And so she spearheaded a review of that judgment and they managed to overturn it. And then Family First fought back and they overturned, they appealed against the overturning and then it got banned. When it got banned, the news went all around the world. The BBC rang me up, New York Times, The Guardian, all over the world phone calls came It was in. your 15 minutes. Yeah, it was. It was more than, that's about 45 minutes. But at that stage I knew that it actually won. So the banning wasn't actually terrible at all. It was quite good. It gave the book a new bit of life and all the ruining of my book of the year status was sort of turned around a little bit. Um, and it got it developed a notoriety. That was, that was the story of it really from my perspective. I got to meet the chief censor, um, Dr. Dr. Jack, who expla- at, a, at a forum, he explained to me how it was a triumph for the censorship process, what happened and how it was vindicated in the end. Because it eventually was unbanned. Yeah, right? eventually so it was unbanned. This, it's like, it's like letting, a happy it's, ending. Yeah, it's like letting someone out of jail for having wrongly convicted them. It's a vindication for jails. I don't really think so. You know. Anyway, I don't know. I open up old wounds. 
that, that book's that book's done its done its time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what would you, what do you think should be censored in two thousand and eighteen? You mean of novels? Yeah. I mean, the, the last book, the last book to be censored in New Zealand prior to my book, or last book to be banned, was eighteen years prior, and the book was called How to Build a Bazooka. I wonder what that was about. They don't, they don't ban novels. I mean, that Fifty Shades of Grey was put forward for banning. It, it was passed without any cuts whatsoever. Um, so they only ban things like really extreme vi- videos, extreme um, child pornography, those sorts of things. Where there are actual people being harmed, right? Yeah, and you also know. where they feel that it, that it, is, it is damaging to the, um, the senses of people who can get part of it. They think it's actually damaging stuff that, you know... People of a certain age overloading on pornography are damaged as a result and end up with a sort of skewed view of the world. People don't read a whole novel because there's two sex scenes in it. That's not what your band book's for. Not in this day and age anyway. No, you know, no. It might have been the sad world we grew up in. but Yeah, yeah. So um, no, I'm not, I, mean, I think that, for instance, in novels, they're self-censoring. That's why I don't think the R14 thing's relevant. I mean, I remember when, when I was growing up, my, my parents avidly bought Lolita. And they left it lying around, and they were, they were reasonably um, careful about what we had, but they knew that I wouldn't read a lot of it, and I didn't. It didn't appeal to me at the age of 13. But when I finally read it at the age of 20, it was a great book. They worked themselves out, these things. I got hold of other books that, that were much more sort of salacious because I was interested in those things at the time. You know, it's how Clan it of the Cave Bear? Sort of like that, yeah. yeah. I, say, I think of more like things like Mandingo and... Um, the carpet baggers, sort of, sort of crap that came out in its time. The yeah, end was passed around. It was exciting. Yeah. It was before, before the modern age. Yeah. Yes, it feels mm. like a different world, doesn't it? To think back and think, I mean, I remember. We got excited about this. Yeah, or just going to the library, you know, and finding books, looking for information in that very manual way. Mm. The idea of there being a stash of porn magazines somewhere sort of so archaic. Well, I was, I was driven to read an, an R.S. Murdoch title called The Severed Head because I heard there's a sex scene in it. So you see, it can, be, it can be a powerful incentive to get a young fellow reading classy literature. But have you ever read any more Iris Murdoch? i read the whole lot. Wah. Never found that sex scene. <laughs> there was none to be found in the end. Mm. Well, Ted, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming in and for talking to us. It's been a real pleasure to have you here at The Open Book, and I'm glad I quoted yourself back to you partway through the podcast there. That's the type of like professional onto itness that you know, I really I call it reminding. For. Yeah, reminding, that's right. Who was that amazing person who said that thing? Oh, it was you. How fabulous. Anyway, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank for you for having out. me. It's been great. This has been Ears Wide Open, a project of The Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. If you are in Auckland, come and visit us. Buy a book. Keep this whole project on its legs. Uh, if you're not in Auckland, you can actually subscribe to my book bag and have hand-picked books sent out to you in beautiful little packages sealed with wax. So that is also a